0: It is August 26th. It is Sunday morning, and our message is called "Though It Linger." The title comes right out of Habakkuk. Uh, I asked you to turn there just a few moments ago, but I didn't tell you where. So turn to Habakkuk 2. If you're still looking for Habakkuk, it is between Nahum and Zephaniah. If you happen to be blessed with the Thompson chain, it's on page 1043. <laughs> Y'all there? Habakkuk 2, starting in verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Habakkuk is facing a unique situation. He's living sometime before the Babylonian captivity. He knows that an invading army is going to come in and crush His people and carry them captive to Babylon. But Habakkuk also contains promise about the leader of wickedness being crushed himself. He's learned about the complaint of His people. He's learned about the impending destruction. And now he's asking God for revelation. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets. It's worth noting at this point that God is very interested in making His revelation plain. I've talked to you before about Proverbs 25 and how it is noble to search out a thing hidden by God. But I want you to understand, God hides things in His Word and in His character and in the creation much in the same way that a loving parent would hide an Easter egg. He hides it in the hope that you will find it because there is something glorious in the searching for it. Have you ever watched a child who looks all over the yard hoping to find their very first Easter egg and then they come across it. They light up. They value it more than they would if you just handed it to them. How about a teenager with a car? If you were a teenager that never had to work for a car, I'm sorry you didn't get to experience this. But when you set aside and you labor and you look forward to every day, especially if you had a car that didn't run and you had to save money to fix it, it means something to you when you got it. You value it more than if there was no searching for it. As an adult, in fact, if you'll permit me, let me draw a little bit from my own experience. Part of sales is creating something called perceived value. You know, it's very possible that Fred could walk into a car dealership where I'm working and make me a legitimate offer the very first time, a good offer, an offer that's profitable for me and is a good deal for him. But I will never accept his first offer. Because if I accept it immediately, it leaves Fred with the feeling, wow, I wonder if I could have got it cheaper. But if we struggle for some time period, if we play that ridiculous game that everybody hates, it builds value into the process. He feels as if he fought for the car. I feel as if I fought to get the best price for the car and everybody leaves happy. It's called perceived value. The problem with many Christians walk is we have been told over and over and over, God loves you. You're credited with righteousness. God loves you. He'll forgive you for anything over and over and over. And there is no laboring. There is no travailing. There is no waiting. It is just all given immediately. And so there is no perceived value. When you grow up in church and all you have ever heard is about the goodness of God. All you have ever heard is about the grace of God. It's lavished on you. It's spilled on you. It's greasy. It's all of those things. Yeah. Sloppy agape. Greasy grace. There is no value in it. You take it for granted. And then one day you're searching the Word and you read something that Peter says. Pray to the Lord and perhaps He will forgive you for having such a wicked thought in your heart. This is contained in the book of Acts. Peter's addressing a man who wanted to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden you put a question mark in your Bible like I did. The very first time I read it, I said, perhaps, I thought it was a foregone conclusion. Saints, there is a value that is placed on anything that you have to wait for, that you have to labor for, that you have to strive to get. And it inherently... Decreases the value of anything for it simply to be bestowed upon you. I'm a preacher and a human being that believes that there is value in working very hard for something. But all the last hundred years of American Christianity has emphasized is that you can do nothing for salvation. This was largely born out of a Protestant idea that wanted to counteract a false notion of being saved through works of sacraments. So the emphasis was placed upon just the opposite. No, it is credit. It is credit. It is credit. But we forget that you work because you're saved. We forget that you have to wait patiently and hope for something that you don't see. That you fight the fight of faith. That you strive. We forget all of those things, and for us it is just order at this window and pick up at the next to where sometime in the 60s and 70s we literally started to say that. You just name it and claim it and it will be yours, really. Well, what about Abraham who waits 20 years? Did he just not know the power of name it and claim it? How about Noah? Why did Noah not just walk out and command those trees to form a boat? No, he labored 120 years, deliberating over each nail he put in the boat. How about Joseph? He had a dream, a revelation from God. Why did He not just say, in the name of Jesus, I claim the palace? Because there is no value in something that you didn't struggle for. But at 17, He had the dream. At 39, it became a reality and that struggle in Him had formed a godly character. Something that is easily gained is easily dismissed. No value on it. Ladies, especially you single ladies, you should learn this lesson quickly. When a young man achieves his goal quickly, you are easily put away. Courtships in ancient times were much longer. Courtships 50 years ago were much longer. Nobody values anything that is easily obtained. I encourage you, saints, as we look at this Scripture today, as we look at this Word, to consider travailing for the promises of God seeing waiting for them as an expression of your trust and of your faith. And all of a the sudden, they will become more precious to you. They will become more powerful, more tangible to you. This intellectual assent to the idea, oh, well, I simply possess it because God's Word says it, is great in theory. But if you never labor with those thoughts inwardly, this morning in our church, there were men and women one bold young lady said it, but there were men that God spoke to me about that are laboring under the yoke of guilt. They're struggling with their own weaknesses and it is holding them back from their relationship to God. It is hard to understand as a human being how your failure in God's sight can be a benefit to you. But let me go ahead and explain it and clue you in. It puts you in touch with just how broken you are before Him, how dependent upon Him you are for grace, and you are waiting for the day of your liberation and trying every day to walk better than the day before, and that struggle creates in you a godly character and a sympathy for other men and women in the same position. This is how God intended it. The facade that the church wears is nothing more than sick stucco. It says on the outside, I'm okay, you're okay, it's all good, it's all religious. Look at me, and it's a lie. The heart of the man of God is brokenness on your face because the closer you get to Him, the more in touch with your own failings you are. But somehow or another, the more in touch with His grace that is made perfect in your weakness you are. Habakkuk said, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what He will say to me, and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald, a messenger, the New Testament would say an apostle, may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. We have grown up with rich, beautiful theology. People have taken the book of Romans and made it a work of art from a theological perspective. And we can quote the Roman road to salvation and we can talk about the principles in the book of Romans and we can outline it. And how many are familiar with the quote from the book of Romans, the righteous will live by faith? It's in the first chapter, the 17th verse. But where did it come from? Out of what heart was it born? These are the words of Habakkuk. Listen. He's told to wait for this to come about. Though it lingers, it certainly will not prove false. Verse 4. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. This is talking about the invading king but the righteous will live by his faith or trust. Habakkuk's cry about the righteous living by his trust or his faith is set in a scenario, in a background, a homiletical setting of everything that is opposed to God coming down on you and you having to wait patiently for something that is lingering, the promises of God to arise. This is where trust really becomes trust. You don't have to hope for something you already have. And the Apostle Paul says that. You hope and wait patiently for something that in your heart you know is true, but in your eyes you cannot see. I ask you saints, how well have you done with the waiting process? In my own personal life, I have close friends. Some of them are not even friends anymore. They were close friends who waited for spouses and they prayed and they cried, and they travailed. And then they gave up, and they went and found their spouse in a bar. I can't begin to speak to you about how devastating it is when we choose the easy, quick route over waiting and travailing for God. I can't begin to explain that to you. It is the choice between idolatry and submission to the Almighty God, between the blessing and the curse. Turn with me to Exodus 24. One of the first instances where you really get to learn from Israel. I mean a story that all of your kids will know. But we seldom grasp the meaning. Exodus 24. Tell me when you're there. (laughs) Y'all are good. And the ones that aren't there are outweighed by the ones that fervently said, There. I wish all of the choices that we had between idolatry and blessing were so plain as our choices for spouses or jobs or those things. But many of them are decisions that we cover with garments of religious wording. We act as if God changes His mind like a windshield wiper. We are called to go and stand against abortion. We go march unless it's raining. We are called to take a stand in our city for God unless it's hard or unpopular. So many times we are unwilling to wait for the success that God's Word promises. And this morning I want to talk about developing a deliberate, resolute, persistent trust in Him that shows up in the way that you wait in the valleys. Are you on Exodus 24? In Exodus 24, starting in the 13th verse, We have this familiar story. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide. And Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. Did Moses leave them as orphans? He left two men there to be able to settle disputes. He was not a neglectful leader. Why did he go to a mountain? Because God Himself called them there. And what was the only words given to the Israelites? Wait here. (laughs) Right now you're full of faith. What have they just seen? The Red Sea split. Pharaoh's army drowned. Bitter waters become sweet. An oasis in the middle of the desert. Fire descend on a mountain. They have seen the miracles of God. They've seen His literal presence in fire at night and a cloud by day. And all they need to do is wait in that same hope, that same faith, while they can't see Moses for a little while. Turn to Exodus 32. Oh, you know what happens, but it's good to read it. It's even better to read it with the idea that this book is not just a book. It's a mirror that will show you who you are inside. It will show you what no one else can see. The Word of God by way of the Spirit of God will divide your joints from your marrow, the most inner parts of you. And you'll find yourself in this position in every choice in your life. Do I wait and apply the Word that I know is true? Or do I give up on God and do what I want to do anyway? In Exodus 32, starting in the first verse, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. In their own words, they condemned themselves. As for this fellow Moses, who what? Oh, delivered us from slavery, showed us ten plagues from God split the Red Sea. As for this fellow Moses who has just delivered us, after 40 days, we don't know what has happened to him. So what do we want? We want a God that we grew up with, a God that we're familiar with, and a apise bull, a fortune-telling bull who would tell us where to go, a golden calf that comes out of a fire. They've been trained this way. This is their carnal or Egyptian nature. And it only took 40 days to get the entire nation of God to crack 40 is often the number of testing in the Bible this is why Elijah eats supernatural food from angels and doesn't need to eat for 40 days it's why Jesus goes into a desert to be tempted for 40 days it's why 40 shows up over and over and over how often has it taken you only 40 days to forget God how about 4 days 4 hours Four minutes. How many times have we known what God's Word says, but decided that it was just too hard and we needed to take matters into our own hands? How is that any different than fashioning a golden calf? This is David's great sin in the census. He knows that God doesn't deliver by a horse. God doesn't deliver by a number of soldiers. God delivers by way of His Spirit. And yet, facing trouble, He's incited by Satan to take a census of his men. You say, well, what's wrong? Soldiers need to know how many they have. The problem was with his heart. The problem was that he sought to solve his problems with the golden calf rather than waiting for God's solution. Are they so very different from us? Are these only allegorical stories and not made of real men with real flesh, with real struggles? Is there nothing in this that you can empathize with? I know in my life, I struggle every time I don't see immediate results from prayer. Oh, I am God's great man of power for about an hour. And then I'm left with my own thoughts and fears and feelings. And sometimes I win and sometimes I lose. But framing the argument correctly helps me. To not wait on God is to not trust God. In fact, it's to rebel against Him and put your trust in a satanic, rebellious power. Turn with me to Psalm 27. We sing these words. We sing them in songs almost every Sunday. But I wonder if you've taken the time to stop and think about what they mean. I counted today and in three of our songs these words appeared. Psalm 27, we're going to read the whole thing. And you'll have to wait patiently. (laughs) The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's a rhetorical question. What should the answer be? Nobody. Nobody. Sometimes when we sing it, we say the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And the congregation says, nobody. And then we walk out and let our fears control us in every arena. Uh Honey, did you get the mail today? Did that bill come? Did it come? What are we going to do? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Well, they're going to cut off our electricity. I'm terrified. Pray for healing and you don't see it immediately. And what kind of thoughts creep into your mind? We have a choice before us in our daily lives. This is a practical message, saints. Are we controlled by our fear? Or will we wait patiently showing our trust in the Lord, realizing that every day that goes by is an opportunity for you to practically display your faith? Oh, it's not a post on a message board that everybody will go, oh, look at your theology. You you obviously have a mind that is superior to everyone else. It is something that shows up in your actions daily. In the rock, in the hard place, what do you do? Dwell in fear or dwell in trust? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. What do you need a stronghold for, saints? Why do you build a panic room or a bomb shelter? Why do you have any stronghold? Because you are prepared for war. We are not in a no contact sport. This is not powder puff Christianity. This is not simply a bless me group where we name the blessings that we would like to have and we claim them and we stand on them. This is a living act of faith that requires the sacrifice of your will daily. Taking up His will, saying, I will wait for what I know, the Word says, despite what I see around me. And every story in this Bible confirms that fact. It takes a real twisting of the Scripture into some bizarre legalistic formula to make it a spell book for blessings in your life. But when we do it, it sells at Walmart, doesn't it? Every lost person I know in business has a prayer of Jabez on their wall. I wonder why. Is it because they've learned to wait and travail and cry for the blessings of God? Doing what is hard in every situation, hoping that our God who Psalm 33 says watches mankind will watch and deliver us? Or is it because they simply want the favor of God without having to dwell with God? It's amazing what appeals to the masses. But it's so easy to see in them. How many times in our life do we do the same thing? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh. That's pretty serious. I love the way David writes. You know, They don't just want to hurt him. They want to eat him. That's pretty rough. That's the whole Lord of the Flies scenario right there. And when my enemy comes and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Do you get the impression that he's kind of preaching to himself? When's the last time you were besieged? When is the last time Sennacherib stood outside your wall and said, I will crush your faith and bring you the heads of the gods you serve? That happened to Hezekiah and Isaiah. They had a choice to cower to all the will of the people or to stand and wait patiently for the deliverance of their God. Well, we know how it turns out, so it's a great story, right? An angel shows up, mows down 185,000 men. But what about the day before when the people were crying and the leader said, Look, send a sheriff, don't speak in Hebrew anymore. We don't want them to understand Speak to us. We're educated, man. Talk to us in your language. Where is our heart really? Is it surrounded by cowardice? Scared to death that we might actually have to show trust in God that we so proudly have professed for many years? Or is there a boldness that God is fanning into flame in you? In the frailness of our bodies. In the midst of our weakness where we said Yes, it's true. We are nothing. And Sennacherib might mow us down but our God with a flick of His finger can mow them down and I'm going to trust in that. We need to learn to fan into flame a righteous indignation that doesn't so much despise your weakness as laughs at the enemy and says, I cannot be stopped. Though it linger, I will wait for it. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. When's the last time you read Psalm 91? This is about dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty, abiding in His presence. Not often? Y'all haven't read that often? Psalm 91 is the go-to psalm in the midst of troubles, right? It says a thousand may fall at this side, ten thousand at this side, but the pestilence, it won't come near me. And then you read carefully and you say, wait, a thousand fell at that side. Ten thousand fell at that side. How is it that the pestilence is not near Him? I would say that's pretty darn nearing. And then you get to the end of the psalm and He says, the Lord will rescue me for I acknowledge His name. He is with me in trouble to deliver me out of it. And you start to get a wholly different picture. Say, our God allows us to dwell in His presence in the midst of our troubles so that you can be in a jail cell falsely or rightly imprisoned and yet be in the throne room of God. Where do you run when it gets tough? Do you run into the shadows of your fear? Surround yourself with sympathetic ears? Pick up the phone and instead of prayer, whine and moan? Or do you run into the presence of God to gain the strength that will sustain you? Too often I've just looked for a sympathetic ear. I counted in the last few days how many times I was tempted to whine about how bad my tooth hurt. Whack. God saw fit to give me lots of spares. The struggles in our lives are just an opportunity to see God's glory, they're just an opportunity to prove the sincerity of our trust. But we don't allow the conversation to be framed that way in the inner workings of our mind. We simply see them as obstacles that we must endure, that are beating on us. In the midst of Job's trouble, I mean after seeing his family mowed down, everything that his body afflicted with sores, hoping that he would die, he still said, all the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal. You say, well, that's because he had no choice. No, he had the same choice you have. He could have just belly ached, laid, whined, and moaned about what God had not done for him. How long have you had to wait for anything? None of you have been alive long enough. None of you to have truly biblical faith. God promised He's going to judge the earth. The Nephilim are on the earth in those days. Have you waited 120 years to see His judgment? How about the age of Methuselah? It testifies to God's grace all at one time. Methuselah's name means when I die, judgment comes. And how long did He live? 960. How would you like to wait for that? Our faith sometimes is so small, but in our Christian literature and on our bumper stickers in our shirt, it appears to be so large. Why is that, I wonder? Could it be because it's easier to put a slogan on a shirt than to put a deed in your lifestyle? Could it be that? I love Christian t-shirts. I wear them all of the time. But I would much rather somebody know I'm a Christian by the way I respond to trouble than the shirt that's on my back. And what is really funny is when you see a shirt on someone's back but the improper response in trouble. When I was a kid, we called those posers. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me. At His tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. One of my favorite scriptures is in Acts 16. Paul and Silas are imprisoned in the inner cells, in the stocks, and it's midnight. But what are they doing? Whining, moaning, wondering why their doctrinal statement has failed them. They're singing praises to their God, the kind of praises that cause the chains to fall off the hearers around them. David knew how to praise in the midst of trouble. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, Seek His face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. I don't remember what we called the message at this point. Oh, I do. A decent proposal. You learn something in the message called the decent proposal. The God of the universe presents Himself as a groom and you as a bride to be betrothed. When God said of Adam, I will make you a helper, the word in Hebrew was ezer. This is somebody to help you in all of your struggles, all of your life. And David uses that word of his God. You have been my helpmate, my help all of my life he said. What's your relationship like with Jesus? Is he just your genie? Your Santa Claus? Dear Jesus, these are the ten things I want this year. (laughs) Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy and I need three wishes right now. You're my cosmic genie and I'm going to call upon you. Or is he your help in times of trouble? Is he the place that you run to and say, Lord, I'm going to show my trust in you, but I'm confessing to you here secretly. It's very hard. I'm broken and this is killing me. Give me the strength that I don't fail. When Christians faced the flames in Fox's book of Martyrs for hundreds of years, the same words are recorded over and over and over. They prayed, not that they'd be delivered from the flames, but that they would have the strength to die for Jesus well. And they sang hymns The same hymns that we think are dry and dusty now sustained them. They sang hymns as flesh fell off their bones. You've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs? It is one of the more convicting books you read in your life and you can buy it for 99 cents because the world places no value on books like that. They place huge value on how to escape trouble, huge value on how God wants you rich, no value on how to sustain faith in difficult circumstances. Verse 10, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me Your way, O Lord. Lead me in the straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. It sounded like David was in trouble. People wanted to eat him. They want to devour my flesh, Lord. They're lying about me constantly. Sound like he was in trouble? Listen to the cry of faith in these words. I am still confident. A confidence in the goodness of God during difficult circumstances is about the boldest expression of faith you can have because the lost cannot do it. Their confidence crumbles in the face of overwhelming circumstances. The Christian is supposed to be different. This shows us where our faith needs to be strengthened, where it is lacking, where it needs to grow. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. This is not when I die, it'll all be all right. I'll go to a better place. He says, I'm confident of this. God will work for my good here and now in this situation. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. David's encouragement to us is though it linger, wait for it. You will see it. How many prayers? How many parables? Did Jesus tell that had to do with not seeing, but waiting? How about the ten virgins? Some who waited and some who didn't. Not enough oil in their lamps. How about the persistent widow that comes over at all hours of the night? And Jesus follows that one up in Luke 18 with a question. When the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? Have you ever wondered, why wait so long, Lord? I mean, we've had Nero, we've had Hitler, we've had Attila the Hun, we've had Hannibal, we've had all of these men. Why wait so long, Lord? Antichrists have appeared everywhere. Why wait so long? Because anything obtained easily is dismissed. Easily. The longer you wait, The longer you travail, the longer you labor, the greater the testimony, the greater the reward. And saints, the more value you place on it. If I give you a car at 15 years old, in a week it's just an item. If you work and save your pennies and nickels and have to strive, and it doesn't look like you're going to make it, but in the end you finally save enough money and you buy it, even if it's a jalopy, you treasure it like it's a Cadillac. What have you had to wait and travail for? Perhaps God is trying to build a testimony in you. Is that possible? Psalm 33 says we will wait and hope, but I'm not going to read it. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. As usual, Eric preached and running out of time. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 10. Adam, what's that clock over there say? It's too far for me to read. 46. Very good. Y'all in 1 Samuel 10? Yeah. Remember I told you every choice when you're waiting for God, between doing what God tells you to do, waiting patiently, trusting Him, showing your trust, and the alternative, which is leaning on your own arm, making your own gods. There's a choice between obedience excuse me, and idolatry. That could never be illustrated any clearer than in the life of Saul. How many of you When you think of godly biblical characters, think of Saul. Well, out of everybody in here, Saul scored 100% failure. His lasting memory on the earth is not what a godly man he was. You've all heard the reasons that Saul was rejected, right? You've heard things like, he's the people's choice. He was a head taller than everyone else. Did we all forget, though, that he was God's choice? God anointed him, didn't He? Oh, but Saul just never had the right heart. That's what it was. Saul was never righteous, right? Oh, really? How about that? Let's read 1 Samuel 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Who anointed him? The Lord. Lord. So whose choice was he? Hmm. Isn't that different than what you've heard most of your life? It's different than what I heard most of my life. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and he is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? That's a pretty impressive word of knowledge, isn't it? When you leave here and go there, you're going to meet men who are going to say this to you and your father will be thinking this. And it's all about donkeys How many times have you received a word from the Lord that went something like this You're young and you're married I see children in your future Yeah how impressive wonderful thank you You know And when you sleep your eyes will be closed This man is a prophet He's hearing from God Why is God giving him such detail Because as it happens he will be encouraged The only reason you've been issued promises from God in your life is so that as they happen, you will be encouraged. And each one should progressively strengthen your faith so that in the day of battle, the real time of decision, when you are actually in a place tempted not to believe, you can look back upon every fulfilled promise and go, He will fulfill this one too. God is batting a thousand right now. What shall I do about my son? Verse 3, Then you will go on from there, another word of knowledge, until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men will be going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread which you will accept from them. Have you all ever heard in a charismatic meeting, Oh, so-and-so read my mail. Really? Like this? because the times that I've had people prophesy to me, it was, you know, you're called. You'll go to distant places. Really? Where, when, who will I meet, and what will they give me? This is a word. This is the kind of word that you know was a word when it came to pass. You didn't have to sit and go, I wonder if that applies. He's telling him where he'll go, what tree he'll see, who will meet him, how many loaves of bread they will have. That's pretty specific, isn't it? I wonder how Samuel learned that. Do you think growing up in the house of God, having his ear attuned to God's command from a very young man benefited him? Do you think he could blame the church's failures all around him? I mean, after all, Eli was cursed by God, later fell over fat and broke his neck. His whole line was cut off. So was it that Samuel just had great priests? I mean, he had great priests. Christian leaders. That's why he turned out so well. There must have been some hunger in him that outweighed his circumstances to hear from God. So that when Eli said, shut up, boy. Go back to sleep. He kept coming to him. No, I hear something. You're not a very good priest, but you're the only guy I can talk to about it. Well, what is it you did here? Oh, you're not going to like what I heard. (laughs) If you all don't know that story, go read it. It's in a book called Samuel. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them. We named the place, the instruments, and what occupation the people were. That's a pretty specific word, huh? Okay? And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power. And you will prophesy with them. And you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever is in your hand that finds to do. For God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you to tell you what you are to do. Saul. These three very detailed things are going to happen to you. And I'm going to name the order of all of the details that it will happen, including God's Spirit coming upon you, changing you, and you prophesying. Pretty rare occurrence in the Old Testament. Not all believers had the ability to prophesy. You had to be in a special position of authority to prophesy in the Old Testament. As Saul turned to leave Saul, God changed Saul's heart. How many of you have never read that in the Word? I remember when I found this. Some years ago, I was preaching in another church and I was shocked. To me, Saul was the Antichrist. I mean, Saul was the type of the devil himself, succeeded by King David who crushed him, right? Not so, saints. Not so. Saul starts off very good. And what are his tasks? Here's what's going to happen every step of the way, Saul. But I want you to wait seven days. Seven days until I show up. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day. The rest of this chapter goes on to tell you that everything that Samuel said would happen. Happened. Do you think that was encouraging to Samuel, to Saul? Do you think that when God said, you'll meet this many people carrying these instruments and this is what will happen, that it built His trust? I bet it did. Wouldn't it build your trust? Turn with me to Samuel 13. How many days was Saul supposed to wait? What choice is before him? Obedience to God. Showing his trust by waiting or committing idolatry by leaning on his own arm, by trying to solve a problem in some other way. It's the same choice that's before you in almost every situation. You're waiting for a husband, for a boyfriend, for a job, for a healing, for freedom from something that's been shackling you, for some breakthrough, for dryness to pass. Whatever it is, we have a choice before us obedience to the promises and the Word of God, acting as if they're true, living like they're true, or idolatry. And you need to learn to frame every choice that you make in those black and white terms because it will keep you from sinning. When I was first born again, I asked myself a question continuously. I've told on P. several times. P. and I used to work together and he got this revelation about casting thoughts down. And he would say, Get down! And sometimes I'd hear that 30 times a day. Dirt, get down! But he was faithful. Every time it bounced up, he cast it down. And I appreciated that. In my life, I would sit and contemplate something. Would the devil tell me to do this? Was a question I would ask myself all of the time. And one of the problems was, I wouldn't want to give all of the money in my pocket to somebody, but I couldn't figure out how the devil would tell me to do that. And in my limited understanding, I said, well, there are only two sources. And if the devil didn't tell me to do it, it must have been God. If you're going to lean one way or another, why don't you lean towards doing something for God? Learn to make your decisions simple. A lot of times the devil is good at clouding the issue with lots of your thoughts and feelings and emotions. And they will compel you to do things God never told you to do. Look at verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's pretty overwhelming, huh? You might need to know that God had ordered the details of your life every day prior to this one to be able to stand against these odds. They went up and camped at Michmash east of Beth Avon when the men of Israel saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed. I wish they had had the words of the Apostle Paul, hard-pressed but not crushed. They didn't have that yet. They hid in the caves and the thickets and among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Now, it's funny. Christians don't hide in those places. Christians hide behind facades full of pride, not allowing anybody to see their real internal struggles, projecting confidence outwardly. Oh, I'm okay. Inwardly, they're as rotten as the day is long, quaking with fear and insecurity. These guys hid in caves and cisterns. We hide right here in plain sight. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. I'm still a Christian. I just don't go to church anymore. One believer that left this fellowship shortly after being baptized told me, I serve my community now through community outreaches. Good for you. We'll see if you're there on that day. She's serving her community now through community outreach. I'm so proud. Crossed the Jordan, went to Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Where was Saul told to wait? Gilgal. How many days? They're quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. Lord, my bank accounts are empty. You promised me you would deliver me. I've cashed in my life insurance policy. I have no health insurance. My kids are sick. I have nothing left. My army has scattered. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering." And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Initially, Samuel said, Look, don't you, don't you do anything. You go to Gilgal. Wait seven days and I'll come and I'll make a burnt offering. But something happened to Saul. He waited seven days and just, as he finished breaking the Word of the Lord, deliverance appeared. One of the real problems with quitting is you never know how close you got to succeeding. See, when you give up the 32nd day and God was coming through for you in the 33rd day, you don't have a way of knowing that. Daniel set his face to pray. Do you remember how many days before the angel showed up? It's 21. 21. What happens if he gave up after 20? Well, the angel never would have shown up and Daniel wouldn't have known. How many times have you strived in faith but dug up in doubt the seed that you planted in faith just before success and didn't know it? You know, that's a question you can't answer because you don't have a way to know. The only way that you see blessings from God is to learn to wait patiently. Let me ask you, though, why is it that we don't? We've identified fear. We know that. Let's see if we can get some insight into Saul's heart because God changed his heart. God built his trust. He prophesied to him, and it all came about just as God had said. So he should have been at the apex of his faith, ready to trust God, just like Israel, just leaving Egypt with all the plagues, all the Passover, all that, should have been at the apex of their faith. Saul was broken in seven days. Israel in 40 days. Sometimes us in 40 minutes. Let's find out why. What have you done, asked Samuel? Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the time set, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought. What did he do first? He saw. Secondly, he thought. Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I will have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt. He first saw something around him. Then he began to think about that. And then dwelling in that thought produced a compulsion in him. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Let me ask you, saints, if what you want to do is wait patiently for the Lord, showing your trust in Him, and you see that in this scenario, he first saw something, he put his eyes on something in a certain direction, and after looking at it, it produced one of these thought. And then after that thought lingered in his mind, he felt compelled, a compulsion. And what was his compulsion towards? Sin. What do you think is easier to deal with? The compulsion of sin, the thought, or the not looking. This is why the Bible tells us to cast our eyes on no unclean thing. And we think, oh, it's talking about some lewdness. No, it can be climbing the mountains in Israel and looking over to see how the world is living. It can be anything. When we look at how the world handles their problems with a certain sense of envy... It is like crying to go back to Egypt where we had leeks and onions. When we begin to dwell on thoughts that are contrary to the Word of God, we are inviting the power of our flesh and the satanic powers in this dark realm to compel us to act against God's Word. This goes all the way back to the garden. Eve looked and saw that the fruit was good for food. And then when she realized it would cause her to gain understanding, she took some of it and ate it. The easiest place to kill all of these things, saints, is in the thought in the seeing. This is why 2 Corinthians 10 tells us to take captive every thought. Make it obedient to the Word of God. You have to know the Word of God first to know how to handle that, though, don't you? Where have your thoughts dwelt? On what can't be done? On every failure and every shortcoming? Or do they dwell on the promises of God and what He says will be done? Do you quake with fear? Or do your knees tremble in faith? We all experience the same emotions. But what we do with them determines whether we're gods or not. I want to stand up and be bold. I want to be gods. Hosea 12.6 You don't have to turn there. says, Oh, Jacob, return to God. Maintain your love And justice, and wait for the Lord always in every situation. Hosea is a book written about Israel's unfaithfulness, displayed in a prophet's marriage to unfaithful women. And the conclusion of the book is love, live in love, maintain it, desire justice, and in every situation, wait for God. Micah 7, this is one I do want to read. Turn to the right from where you are quite a long ways. If you hit Matthew, you went too far. Back up. Tell me when you're in Micah 7. I'm going to read just a couple more scriptures. And you will have to wait patiently, showing your trust that what God is feeding you is for your good. The longer you struggle with a problem, the more overwhelming it looks. The longer that you have struggled with something in your body, the easier it is just to accept it. The longer you've struggled with a sickness in your spirit, the easier it is just to give up and make a treaty with it. We need to have a faith that trusts God in every situation for His Word to be true, that is not motivated by a fearful thing that we see, causing us to think wrongly and compel us to act wrongly. The phrase I think I hate the most in this world is that's just the way He is. What a horrible commentary on everyone's lack of ability to believe that God can work powerfully in you and change you. That should be the most insulting thing that is ever said about you. Oh, that's just the way Eric is. Oh, you don't know my God very well. Because Eric can get better every day. In fact, he is. I'm even encouraged when you... See and point out my flaws. It gives me room to improve before God. I've noticed something. Everybody else's flaws become much more visible to any individual who has recently been corrected for their own. Isn't that amazing how that works? And when we're unable to wait for God and we just can't stand and show faith, that's an amazing thing because we're always able to wait to see whether God's Word for us to do something was true. Go feed the hungry. Well, we better dwell on that one a while. Better tested, I'm not sure that was God. We're always able to wait when it requires us to do something. We're never able to wait when it requires us to simply wait. (laughs) That's why we have scriptures that say, Be still and know that He is Lord. Are you in Micah 7? Micah 7, starting in verse 7. Isn't that nice? But as for me, I will watch and hope for the Lord. I will wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Where was He sitting? Where was He at? Fallen. Fallen and in darkness, but hoping in the Lord. This message is not an excuse to give up. It is not a chance for you to be condemned. Hosea tells us to repent to trust the Lord in every situation, to dwell in love and justice. Micah tells us, though we've fallen, we wait in hope. I would submit to you that it's just as much sin to say that you're a failure and you can't succeed as it would be to say that you're already a success. We are made to live somewhere in the struggle and then we value the grace that God gives us. Romans 8 says, We wait in the hope of the redemption of our bodies. Corinthians 4 says, Look, I don't want you to judge anything before the appointed time. Instead, let's wait for the Lord and He'll show us. Have you ever wondered what about the Scripture, Judge not lest you be judged? You don't have the right to make judgments about things that God has not shown you clearly. He wants you to make a judgment about. Spirit-led judgment is the only way. Revelation 6, during the fifth seal, the martyrs are crying out, Lord, <laughs> we're getting killed here, you know. Hello, losing the game. What are you going to do? Are you going to come back? He says, I want you to wait just a little longer until the full number of the martyrs has come in. Then in the next seal, the trumpets blow. Amazing how that happens. And at the last trumpet, God's kingdom set up on the earth. It all requires something that the book of Revelation calls patient endurance on the part of the saints. And you're in training for it now. A young lady in this church asked me about the ministry of Elijah and it set me on a track of thought. If you have your pens, you will want to write this, but I'm going to go quickly so you'll have to come after the message maybe and ask. Elijah with a J, one of the mightiest prophets in Israel. We're talking about a man so revered that the apostles walking with Jesus after a town rejects them says, can we call down fire on them? Elijah was the superman in their thoughts. They waited for him to come and pave the way for the renewal of all things. And Jesus said he would. How about that? In Elijah's life, he prophesied a drought that lasted three and a half years. He literally shut the heavens at his word. That's in Kings 17. In Kings 17 verses 8 through 16, he multiplies a widow's flower and oil supernaturally. In Kings 17, 17 through 24, He resurrects that same widow's son. In Kings 18, starting the verse 30 and going through 45, He calls down both fire and rain from heaven. Just a few verses later in Kings 18, verse 46, He outruns chariots over a distance of some 30 miles. In 2 Kings 1, verse 9, through the 12th verse, twice he calls down fire from heaven and consumes enemy troops. In 2 Kings 2, starting in verse 7, he walks up to the Jordan, takes off his coat, rolls it up, slaps the water and it, piles up in heaps on both sides. is that a pretty powerful man of God? He had a protege. He had somebody who in English name would be Elisha. But we're not going to call him that. We're going to call him Elisha with an S. And what Elisha was promised from God, promised through the man of God he was serving, was that he would get a double portion of his master's spirit. Do you remember that Jesus said we would do even greater things than him? This is because a teacher takes all that he was given by God and he imparts it to a student who then has their lifetime to build upon that. So the anointing, the power, the knowledge, all of those things should grow successively with each generation. In the Scripture, it's undeniable that Elijah with a J did at least seven major miracles. Now we can debate and get that as high as 16 about all of his words of knowledge. Undeniable at least seven. Elisha, his protege, starting in 2 Kings 2, also divided the Jordan. He used his master's cloak, but it was him who did it. He healed waters in 2 Kings 2.19. They were waters that were bitter, that contained poison, and he threw a bowl of salt in them, prayed over it, and made them good. In 2 Kings twenty three, he calls down two bears out of nowhere... That come and eat forty-two children. You know why? They called him a bald head. That's good news, isn't it, Darren? God takes insults to men of God's hairline seriously. Amen, Matthew. In the fourth chapter of Second Kings, a widow who every empty jar she brings Elisha he fills with oil until she quits bringing him empty jars. Later on in the 4th chapter, 16th verse, a woman who could not have children was healed and she became pregnant. Later on in the same chapter, 4th chapter, the same woman's son dies. Who she blame? Elisha, amazing. Later, towards the end of the 4th chapter, guys are out in a field, they pick a vine that is poisonous. They put it in a pot and decide that they're going to eat it and realize that there's death in the pot. Elisha heals it by praying over it. And they put flour in the pot. Flour seems to cure everything in cooking. And they all eat it and nobody is harmed. Fourth chapter, 42nd verse, he takes 20 loaves of bread and feeds 100 men. In the fifth chapter, he heals Naaman of leprosy, something almost unheard of in Israel's history. In the sixth chapter, he makes an iron axe head float because it was a borrowed tool and he cared about the man's reputation. Later in the 6th chapter, his servant Gehazi is scared. So he prays for him and his eyes are opened and he can see all of the armies of the Lord with him. Still later in the 6th chapter, he walks up to an Assyrian army and blinds all of them, the entire army, with one prayer. Is that a pretty powerful man of God? Even more remarkably, at His word, they're all healed. healed towards the end of the 6th chapter. Turn with me to 2 Kings 13. We'll close with this verse. <clears throat> did anybody number those? Some of you were writing. There were seven that Elijah. How many did I give you that Elisha did? 13. Problem though... Elisha dies. In Elijah's lifetime, he did seven major miracles. The promise to his successor was that he would do twice as many miracles. I'm sure this must revolve around some translation issue, right? We must misunderstand it because God surely can do math. And twice seven is not thirteen. What is it? Fourteen. Amazing. Amazing. How many times has it looked to you like there was no way that God's promise for your life could be true? Israel's Messiah, the one promised to come and deliver Israel, it looked like that promise could not be true because he was hung on a tree and killed. God had made a promise to Elijah twice as many miracles. And in his own lifetime, he didn't even see that come to pass. But there was a battle one day In 2 Kings 13, starting in verse 20, Elisha died and was buried. God's Word failed. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter that country every spring. That can't be good. How could God use Moabite raiders as something that would be good? I imagine all Israel cringed and hid and said, Why would God do this to me? We've been faithful. We gave our tithes and now they're attacking not what the prayer of Jabez promised. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, nothing good could come out of that, huh? Suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elijah's tomb. When the body touched Elijah's bones, the man came to life and stood on his feet. Saints, even if it takes a resurrection from the dead, God's promises will be true to you. Our King and our faith is founded upon the fact that our Savior's life was indestructible and that the promises of God were not prevented even by His death. These stories are nurtured, are given to us through the Scripture to encourage us. In Elijah's life, it looked like the promises of God had failed or else they couldn't add. But give it just a little time and even his dry, dead Bones brought somebody back to life because the promises of God will never fail. How dry are you? Speak life into the bones. The promises of God will not fail you. They will not fail. The question is, will you fail them? If you cling to the Word, you are on a sure foundation. If you run from it, then you receive the penalty of idolatry. On the day of Israel's greatest accomplishment, receiving the law, 3,000 of them were struck down by their own priesthood. The reason that Christians perish and they do not make it is they fail to wait for God in any and every circumstance. God's not asking us to win the battles. He's asking for us to wait for Him to win the battles in us. Saints, you all stand to your feet.